Well, thanks so much, Kathy and Taylor and accompanying us. You guys did a great job leading us to think about the amazing love of Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to try to get back to a verse-by-verse study here after a long series on parenting. Uh, But I've I've got to tell you, we're going to just get started this morning and have to finish this particular sermon the week after Easter. But uh, today I want to talk to you about spirit-filled slavery. Spirit-filled slavery in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Keep in mind, we've been looking at what it means to walk uh, in wisdom, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what that looks like at home in your marriage, uh, what that looks like uh, between moms and dads and their parenting. And now we're going to be talking about what that looks like at work between an employer and an employee. But before we can talk about the practical implications of verses 5 through 9 about what that might look like at work, and we're going to get very practical on that, spelling out a lot of application for us all to consider, I just felt like it was worthy of our attention to talk about what does the Bible say about slavery? What does the Word of God have to say about the institution of slavery? And so keep that in mind as that'll be the kind of focus that we do today. And I'm getting this again from verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not only by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and pray that you would help us understand this text, and before we can get into all of the details of this particular portion of Scripture, we want to take a a holistic view of what the Bible says about slavery. God, how we need your help to understand what your Word teaches and understand what we've experienced in a world of history. Pray, God, that today you would bring clarification to your will through your Word as we address the topic of slavery. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can't really talk about slavery without thinking about slavery right here in the United States of America. That's the first thing that comes to our hearts and our minds when the name slavery is just brought up. I can't help as a Southern boy, born and raised in Georgia. My dad grew up on a tobacco farm and a cotton farm. I uh, scouted cotton myself for about five or six years through high school and college. And I've seen the effects of slavery on a culture in the Deep South. And I just wanted to say that slavery in the United States was, was the legal institution of forced human labor, which existed in the 18th and 19th centuries. Slaves existed in this country from the time of the American Revolution until the end of the Civil War. At the height of slavery, there were some 4 million African-American slaves who were subjected to this inhumane caste, which made up 14% of the U.S. population. It was the rapid expansion of the cotton industry in the Deep South 
after the invention of the cotton gin, a way to really process the cotton and remove the cotton seeds so that you can use the, the product of cotton in the, 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 the production of clothing and all kinds of things. It was, it was this invention that led the southern states to depend on slavery as an integral part to their economy. And while the importation of slaves was nationally prohibited in 19, excuse me, in 1808, just like 55 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, so while it was prohibited for uh, the idea of importing slaves, there was still illegal importation and the smuggling in of kidnapped slaves taken from their villages in Africa, which happened all the time. Domestic slave trading continued at a steady pace, driven by the demand from the growth of these cotton plantations and the treatment of slaves in the United States varied widely depending on the conditions and the times and the places of where a particular slave would be. Obviously, some slaves had great relationships with their masters who treated them with kindness and respect, but unfortunately, other slaves were abused. Slaves were punished by whipping, shackling, hanging, beating, burning, mutilation, branding, and imprisonment. Punishment was often meted in response to disobedience or perceived infractions, but sometimes abuse was carried out simply to reassert the dominance of the master over the slave. Treatment was actually harsher on larger plantations, which were often managed by overseers and owned by absentee slaveholders. In contrast to this, things typically went much better for the small slave-owning families where the closer relationship resulted in sometimes what would be a, a best friend scenario where they would care for their children, where they would treat their, 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 their help with their uh, care of the home. They, they would live through all of life. They would even eat together in settings where, where God was honored, maybe, if possible, in a setting like that. Well, in the midst of the Civil War era, we understand that President Abraham Lincoln was against slavery. He said this, quote, slavery is founded in the selfishness of man's nature. Opposition to it is the love of justice. These principles are an eternal antagonism. And when brought into collision so fiercely as slavery extension brings them, shocks and throes and convulsions must ceaselessly follow. President Lincoln also said, quote, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. I think slavery is wrong morally and politically. Well, thank God for the Emancipation Proclamation given in the midst of the Civil War, 1863. Obviously, after the war ended in 65, all slaves in America were set free. American slavery at its worst was brutal, cruel, ruthless, heartless, inhumane, and ungodly. I believe that American slavery, as it was abused, is clearly the sin of greed of the highest order and built on the love of money. The Bible tells us is the root of all evil. This led to sinful abuse, extortion, and harmful treatment of God's most precious image 
bearers, our brothers and sisters who worked and who lived in slavery. John MacArthur, in his recent book that came out a few years back, entitled Slave, he writes the following, quote, If anyone understood the horrors and abuses of the 18th century slave trade, it was John Newton, who, by the way, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton had actually experienced slavery himself in Africa. He experienced both sides, having lived as a slave in Africa and having participated in the trade after returning home. Later, God converted him, and as a minister, he had written about the abuse of slavery, and in the end, he was instrumental in bringing the British slave trade to its end. Christians today can rejoice in God's providential use of John Newton, not only by saving him personally from his wicked past, but also using him along with others like William Wilberforce and William Pitt to end one of modern history's great injustices. MacArthur goes on to add, quote, as Newton came to realize the British-American slave trade of his day was utterly unrighteous and unbiblical. The kidnapping or man-stealing on which the entire system was built is clearly prohibited by both the old and the New Testaments. Moreover, the racial prejudice that it engendered has no place in the church where all believers are co-members of the body of Christ. It is, therefore, no wonder that as his years of the ministry progressed, John Newton grew increasingly disgusted with that wicked institution and his involvement in it. So all this leads to the obvious question, is slavery wrong or is it right? Is it condemned by Scripture or is it condoned on Scripture? The obvious question that we have to answer, and my answer, I'll just go ahead and put my cards on the table. The Bible condemns all forms of sinful slavery. Okay? There's a type of slavery that is allowed, which we'll get to, but first we need to understand clearly that there's a type of slavery that was not allowed, that was actually condemned by Scripture, and you see it there, a first point of a four-point outline. We want to talk about the fact that the Bible does indeed condemn all forms of sinful slavery. Your first blank in the outline is this. The Bible teaches that you may not steal a man and sell him. You'll need to turn with me to Exodus chapter 21 so that you can see this verse for yourself. I'm afraid that in the Christian world that we live in, too many people get caught up in, well, the Bible never condemns slavery, but never condones it, so I guess all slavery is okay. Nothing could be further from the truth. And if you'll look with me in Exodus chapter 21, you can read it with your own eyes. Let's set it in its context. One chapter after Moses gave the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments about the moral law of God, he then begins to give a civil and a social and ceremonial laws throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And in chapter 21, the very next chapter after the Ten Commandments, he begins to address slavery. Exodus 21, 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But 
if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these thing, three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee." But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's in that context that I want you to look very carefully at the next verse, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. What does the Bible teach about slavery? You may not enter into a normal habitat of a man or a woman and steal a person from their homeland and use them for your selfish service and then sell them for gain. Nothing could be more clear than Exodus 21:16. It is forbidden by God's law to obtain a slave in this way. And if you were guilty of this sin, you were to be put to death. You say, Adam, well, that's the Old Testament. Doesn't the Bible have a lot to say about slavery in the New Testament? Indeed, it does. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and here we're going to see the second point of our outline. Enslavers are lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy, and profane. What we're saying is both the Old Testament and the New Testament condemn a sinful form of slavery. We've read the Old Testament text. Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll see the context here in verses 8 through 11. Here's what we read. Remember, these are pastoral epistles of Paul instructing Timothy how to run church. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, here's our word, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. What is Paul saying? He's saying that if you are guilty of the sin of enslaving another person who is considered innocent only for the personal gain of yourself, then you are an unbeliever. 
say, Adam, that sounds kind of strong. Well, what else does he mean when he says that we got to understand the law, verse 9, laid down not only for the just but the unjust, and then he describes here that the law is for who? The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. And then he goes to describe who those people are, and it's everything in this list. And unfortunately, too many times, we focus on the word homosexuality. And we forget the word right next to it is enslavers. Unrepentant enslavers are guilty of sin and not taking part in the kingdom of God. And we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament a very clear condemnation of the practice of slavery if it is a sinful practice, i.e. abducting or kidnapping an innocent man or woman, boy or girl or child out of their homeland and taking them into your service or selling them for your own selfish gain. The Bible says it's sin. To which you should be asking, then how come the Bible never calls for the abolition of slavery? And instead, the Bible kind of seems to kind of work around it a little bit. And so let's look at that in our second major heading here. Number two, the Bible does actually permit non-abusive and beneficial slavery which sometimes is thought of as the concept of the bond servant. Let's talk about that for a moment, if we can. First, let me just say, slavery and slave trade have been age-old institutions and practices in almost every continent in the world. So the Bible is only addressing what's already happening all throughout human history. In fact, according to historian Orlando Patterson, he writes the following, quote, There is nothing notably particular about the institution of slavery. It has existed from before the dawn of human history right down to the 20th century. In, most primitive, in the most primitive of human societies and in the most civilized. There is no region on earth that has not had some time, at some time, harbored this institution. Probably there is no group of people whose ancestors were not at one time slaves or slaveholders. Slavery was firmly established in all the great early centers of human civilization. When did slavery start? It started with the fall. It started when sin entered the world. It has been known to every people and every tribe of every country, best we can tell. In the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, the main word for, for the word slave is the word, as you know, doulos, the Greek word doulos. It appears 124 times in the original manuscripts. Many times, instead of translating doulos as slave, many modern translations translate it, the word doulos instead of as slave as servants. And so we have to come to understanding, should it be translated as slave or as servant? Ironically, the Greek language has at least a half a dozen other words that could be translated as servant. And so the argument could be made that when the Bible uses the word doulos, it should use the word slave and not servant. The word doulos communicates more than simple servitude. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is certainly a foremost authority on this subject of translation of words, the word doulos is used, quote, exclusively to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. This Theological Dictionary goes on to state that the word doulos, quote, the meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous 
to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice of the one who renders it, but he has to perform whether he likes it or not because he is a subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. The term stresses that slaves depend on their lords. So you say, Adam, well, which one is it? You, you say one side of your mouth that God condemns slavery, but then you say the word should be translated as slave. Listen to what MacArthur writes in, the, in his book, again, Slave. He says, while it is true that the duties of slave and servant overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired. Slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slavery, on the other hand, have no, uh, slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, autonomy, or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that in the eyes of the law, they were regarded as things rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. So again, you got to be asking the question, uh, which one is it? Is it allowed or is it forbidden? And the answer I'm giving is this. If it's sinful slavery, it's forbidden. What is sinful slavery? Abducting or kidnapping a person out of their natural habitat and forcing them into hard labor for your own selfish gain or selling them to somebody else. That's sin. It's condemned in Exodus 21, 16, 1 Timothy 1, 10. The kind of slavery that's allowed would be the kind of slavery that the Bible gives provision to. And there are cultural and biblical permissive forms of slavery, such as the concept of bondservant, by which a slave becomes a slave under appropriate means. Let me explain a couple of those to you. A, in your outline, this is your next blank. Here's a way that you could appropriately become a slave. History records that a thief could become a slave until repayment was made. So if you were caught stealing something instead of being put into prison, which is mainly punitive, you could be enslaved, if you will, to that person you stole from until the repayment was to be made. This is thought of as maybe a more productive way to deal with the sin and sort of just putting them in prison for the rest of their life. You make them work for until they can repay all that is owed. In fact, that's shown a couple of times in a few parables in the New Testament. B, freed persons could sell themselves into slavery knowing that they could later regain their freedom. So at any time, if somebody wanted to sell themselves into slavery, there were certain contracts that could be drawn up to which there was an agreement, a mutual agreement made over a period of time to where the slave would work for the master until the contract was fulfilled, and then he would be set free. C, some sold slaves, sold themselves into slavery for a better life, an education, and an opportunity for job training. There was no welfare in the ancient world. So the idea is if you're not going to be able to make it on your own as a peasant or a worker, it might be wiser for you to actually sell yourself and your family into a better life where you could receive an education and you could receive an opportunity to be trained. And this could even be the idea, again, of the bond servant or a sharecropper. 
Just like many jobs today provide benefits for their employees, there's health insurance and there are retirement options and there's other allowances that companies provide, whether it be a car or a certain amount of money to be used at the disposal of the employee. In those days, it could be that a master would then hire the slave, then they would become a full-blown slave if they chose to go this route, and the master would provide for them their house, their food, their clothing, their entire livelihood. That would have been an appropriate way that you could become a slave. D, if your country was conquered, offering your services as a slave was better than the alternative. Needless to say, if you went to war in the ancient world and your clan, your village, your country was conquered, you you didn't want to be killed. You didn't want to have bad things happen to your wife and children so you could offer yourself as a slave. Or they might just take you as a slave depending on the particular culture of that national group. But the idea is certainly that maybe becoming a slave to the country that conquered you is a better option than being killed or being abused in a very ungodly way. And so that might be an appropriate way where they would become the subjects of the conquering country. Now, those are some things that we learn from history recorded for us. Let's look at some biblical ways that there's some laws given about slavery. Turn with me to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, and you see E coming out there in your outline, that the Hebrew people could not make slaves out of their brothers. And so the first law that we need to see here in the Torah, the first five books, again, of the, of the Old Testament and the, and the Levitical uh, section here, Leviticus 25 is actually a phenomenal chapter about the year of Jubilee and about how the Hebrews were to farm their land and, and how they were to, to, to return the land every seventh year and at the year of Jubilee and the same thing with the slaves. If you'll look again at chapter 25 of Leviticus and we'll start uh, reading in verse 39, there we read this. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him at serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant, as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of, Jub- of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. In other words, when it came to Hebrew people, they were not to become slaves. You could hire them as a servant, but you couldn't abuse them as slaves. God's even reminiscing to the fact he's already brought them out as slaves from Egypt. They are now free. You could not enslave a fellow Hebrew person if you were a Jew. And so there's some parameters given there. Secondly, or we could say F, our second biblical description here, Israelites were, they were, however, allowed to buy slaves from other nations. Look at the next verse. They were allowed to buy slaves from other nations. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. So here's a ramification where God allowed people to buy slaves. And it's to be understood that they're buying a slave that became a slave 
under a reasonable legal way, such as the ones we've already mentioned, either a thief becoming a slave to replace payment or a freed person going into slavery with a contract or somebody who's looking for a better life or some conquered people. If they had become a slave in any of these ways, then certainly the Israelites were given permission by God to buy slaves, but they were always to treat them kindly and with care and with the love of God. Furthermore, in G, we read this, in the year of Jubilee, all slaves were set free. In the year of Jubilee, after seven sevens in that 50th year, known as the year of Jubilee, we read in verses 53 and following, he shall treat them as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so the idea was that while Hebrews were freed every seven years, that in the year of Jubilee, there's a sense that most scholars that I've studied on this subject would say all slaves are set free in the year of Jubilee. There's this freedom, this idea that slavery doesn't compound generation after generation after generation, but eventually every slave in their lifetime, even under the, the most conservative of circumstances, could look forward to their freedom, at least if they grew up in a culture like this. H, a slave who fled from an oppressive master was to be granted protection and asylum. Look at Deuteronomy Chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Moses writes this, You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your, own one of your towns, whether it, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Well, these are good laws given that if a slave escaped from his owner, it's presumed to be that he was being abused or possibly taken as a sl slave unlawfully. And if he escapes from that master and he comes into your presence, you're not to enslave him. You're not to return him. You're to allow him to live in your area, in your town as whatever suits him. And you're not to, to rule over him. And so we see there's provision given in the law for those that were escaping from oppressive masters. They were granted protection and asylum. And this obviously shows that God cares about this system of slavery to forego any type of abuse. I, the last subpoint here, the kind of slavery allowed by Scripture was to be a blessing and controlled by love. Turn back to Exodus 21, where we've already read this passage about how there's no way you can justify stealing a man and selling him for profit. A little bit earlier in that chapter, in verses 5 and 6, we read this. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall, uh, with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And so there's the idea of the, of, of the uh, hole in the ear, which would mark this slave as now being a bondservant to his master, really, for the rest of his life. The idea here is that this was motivated out of love. 
out of appreciation, out of gratitude to the godly master, if you will, and he's going to endear himself to him, and he's going to uh, serve him for the rest of his life. And so this shows uh, that there are provisions in God's word for slavery when it's done in the right way, when it's done in a God-honoring way, when it's done to the glory of Yahweh. It was certainly allowed. Many slave masters had the choice to free slaves at any time for any purpose, out of their own grace, out of their own dignity. They were certainly welcome to do that as well. Third point I want to make this morning is this. Number three, the Bible instructs slaves to submit to their masters. So while we're talking about there's a type of slavery that is condemned in Scripture, there's a type of slavery that is allowed in Scripture, one thing we must learn for sure is that the Bible instructs slaves to submit to their masters, and this brings us back to the text we're in today. Slaves are called to obey their earthly masters. Is that not what we're studying here in Ephesians 6, where verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Nowhere in this text do you see the idea that slaves shouldn't obey their masters. Nowhere in this text do you get the idea that slaves should run away or they should steal from their masters or not do their work heartily. Instead, you get the idea, which couldn't be more clear, that they're to stay in the position they are and work heartily for their master in a God-honoring way. In the same text we read in Colossians 3, if you want to turn there, the parallel passage to this epistle of Ephesians is this epistle to Colossae, where Paul writes many of the same things. And in verses 22 of chapter 3 and following, we read, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, the idea is, is you're to obey your master if you fear God. If you're a Christian slave, you have no right to run away but rather to submit yourself to and obey your master. This is what God would call of you. This is what God's word clearly says. In fact, turn to the pastoral epistle of Titus. Titus chapter 1, or chapter 2 rather, verse 9. Remember, these are the, the letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that Paul instructs these two young pastors of how to run church and how to do the work of the ministry as fellow pastors. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 9, we read this, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so what we're actually seeing here is that God's glory could be adorned through the obedience of the slaves submitting to their master. C in your outline says this, slaves are to stay in the condition they are when they are saved, unless there was a legal and God-honoring way to obtain their freedom. So there is a way out of this if you follow the law of the land. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 which is a passage that addresses marriage, it addresses circumcision, it addresses slavery. It gives certain principles here. And the main idea is, is that you're to continue on in a God-honoring life in the condition in which you were saved. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 17. We read, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? 
Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. For one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a slave, is, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price, so do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What does this text teach? Remain in the condition that you are. The temptation would be for us as Christians to absolve all forms of slavery. Even in the Greco-Roman world, there was abusive forms of slavery. And I think to one extent, we should call for the abolition of slavery. But in another extent, as long as the institution exists, there is some degree of honor that God places on the idea of submitting to, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the master. And so the idea here cannot be disregarded. Not only that, I think I skipped one point on B. You guys got that one? Slaves are to regard their masters are worthy of all honor. If you didn't catch that one, that slaves were to regard their, their masters as worthy of all honor. You say, well, Adam, how, how does this work? I don't understand how you can have the mindset if someone's being unreasonable. Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read a perspective that we've got to understand. Let me just say that much of what the Bible teaches about slavery has to do with the Christian's personal responsibility to God and to others. The world will always be full of sinful practices, and as far as non-believers go, we shouldn't necessarily expect otherwise. But if you find yourself in a situation that doesn't seem right, we still have a responsibility to honor God in it because there is something bigger at stake here. What's possibly bigger than being a slave or not being a slave? It's being a Christian and being a witness of Christ in how you live, which is why we read in 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he's telling servants here that they need to be subject not only to the good masters, but to those who are unreasonable, to those who are unjust. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, it's beautiful in the sight of God when you suffer and you just keep trusting God. Verse 20, for what credit is there when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you sin and you get punished for your sin, that's on you. But if you haven't done anything worth punishment, in the middle of verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you just trust the Lord with your situation, and you say, Adam, I cannot bear under that. Well, there's hope in the next verse. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You might understand that while I may not be able to identify with you, if I've not been through that type of suffering, Christ has. Christ was scourged. 
Christ was whipped. Christ was mutilated. Christ was disfigured. Christ was crucified. And he didn't deserve any of it. And yet the Bible tells us that he did this for us, giving us an example that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You've had one who has gone before you who has suffered the ultimate atrocity of being persecuted and beaten and crucified on a cross. And following his example is that we remain faithful as those who would broadcast the glory of God in the midst of our worst trial by honoring those over us in the position of authority, by submitting to them as unto the Lord. And we must look to Christ for our example. The focus of the Bible It's not to to bring abolition to slavery, but rather abolition to sin. You're able to do that by looking to Christ. And maybe by your example, you can win a master to Christ. This leads us to our last heading, number four. The Bible teaches that all Christians are slaves or bondservants of Christ. A, in Christ, our ethnicity is. Social status and gender is de-emphasized. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we learn very quickly that the first thing that should identify us is not our ethnicity, it's not our social status, it's not even our gender, as important as those things are. We read in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Same thing is written in Colossians 3.11, by the way. The idea is that we got to understand that we are all in Christ. That's what makes us who we are. It doesn't matter if you got a lot of money or you got nothing. If you're a free man or a slave, if you're a man or a woman, if you've been circumcised or you haven't, doesn't matter. Ultimately, what matters is that you are in Christ. And as someone who is in Christ, you have the opportunity to win others to Christ, not fighting so much for social justice as you are fighting for people to come to Christ by being a godly example, pointing others while you suffer in your situation that you point others to Christ by trusting in him and following in his example. Secondly, in Christ, we must learn what it means to be a slave or a servant of all. Guess who uses the word doulos many times in his teaching? The Lord Jesus Christ does. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 27, we read about Christ telling us and using the word doulos. In Matthew 25, 21, which is the parable of the servants, there was a wicked servant and there was a good servant. And when Jesus uh, tells this parable, he says this, again, Matthew 25, 21, that his master said to him, well done, good and faithful Slave, the word doulos, he, he, he uses the word and he's talking about that's the picture that we should look at, that we should be a good and faithful slave, that we did all that our master commanded so that when he returns for us, he could say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. 
Same thing in Mark 10, 44. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful doulos. Same thing in Matthew 25. This is a new one, not in your outline. Matthew 25, 21 is the account where we read where Jesus says this. Um, well, I guess that's the one I just said, right? I'm sorry, these other two texts, Matthew 20, 27, are, are about, uh, about to, be a, to, be a, to be first, you must be slave of all. Forgive me for that. All right, Matthew 20, 27, Mark 10, 44 are the two passages that say, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you must be the what? The servant or the slave, doulos, of all. And so the idea I'm trying to get at here is that Jesus actually magnifies the concept of slavery, encouraging us as Christians to think of ourselves as such, being willing to serve or to be a slave unto all, to ultimately be a slave unto our master, a good master, Jesus, who bought us from slavery to our sin, which is what point C is all about. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 6. Again, using slavery in a positive way, at least in the sense of learning what we can learn from this institution. In Romans chapter 6, we understand in verse 15 and following, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, uh, not under law, but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, doulos, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves, doulos, of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The truth is, is that we are all slaves to something. You are either a slave to your sinful flesh and your sinful nature, or you're a slave to Christ. And we should actually thank God that he bought us through the death of his son so that you no longer have to be tortured by the slavery of our sinful condition, but rather we can receive the grace of God and become slaves to his righteousness. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be a slave of Christ. I'm glad that I no longer have to be overcome with my sin, but rather I can be overcome with Christ. It's a beautiful picture. It's imagery that we must not lessen. The take-home points say this. Number one, slavery as defined by kidnapping innocent individuals and treating them cruelly and inhumanely and forcing them to do hard labor for one's selfish gain is the sin of greed and hate. It's condemned by the Bible and therefore has no place in the life of a Christian. So next time somebody says to you, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, say, oh, yes, it does. 
in certain cases of Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, and in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, you can say the Bible condemns stealing a man and selling him for your selfish gain. Don't just sit back and say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say, it just doesn't say you can do it, doesn't say you can't. No, there's certain forms that are forbidden in Scripture. I hope that's clear to you by this sermon. Number two, slavery was allowed by the Bible. The slavery that was allowed by the Bible was to only be a blessing and motivated out of love where God's kindness could be magnified in both parties, honoring their position with mutual honor and respect for each other. The type of slavery the Bible allows was to be a blessing. It's to be motivated out of love, care, mutual respect, helping each other out in a way that would honor the Lord. Last, slavery can serve as one of the strongest illustrations about how we relate to God as those who have been ransomed, redeemed, and regenerated, ready to be immersed in the master service as instruments of righteousness. Thank God that we can look at this illustration and we don't have to say, oh, it's no big deal. No, it's a big deal because it describes your position with God, that you don't have the right to negotiate with God what you will do and what you won't do. But once you are bought by the blood of Christ, you become his. Your will becomes his will. You follow whatever he says and get this, he is a good slave master. He has your best in mind. He cares for you. He's rescued you from your other master. Be a slave of Christ today, and you can be a spirit-filled slave. Let's pray together. Father, admittedly, we're sobered by these texts that we've read and by some of the history we reviewed this morning. It's not easy to talk about this subject. And I pray that you would provide clarity from your word about what is not allowed and what is allowed when we talk about the institution of slavery. And I pray, God, that we would never support a practice that is condemned in the Bible. And at the same time, God, for those appropriate practices, I pray that you would give us wisdom and grace to bear up under suffering and to realize that it's not so much about the abolition of slavery as it is about the abolition of sin, so that we could be a witness for Christ in whatever condition we're in, to the glory of Christ. Help us, God. I fear that there may be some here today that are maybe stirred by this message. Would you give us grace to understand it appropriately and apply the principles biblically? And as we get into a very practical application in the weeks that come about how to treat an employer or an employee, God, give us grace in this present life that we live. Help us to think through your kindness to us, your grace in our lives, the way you bought us, the way you ransomed us by having your own son whipped, scourged, and crucified, that we could be set free of the slaves, slavery to sin, and we could be made slaves of Christ. What an honor. What a privilege. What a joy. May we serve you faithfully, filled with your spirit, changed by your love, dedicated to a lifetime of service. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.